1: is very small. It, it looks very big on the picture, but it's, we are very, very small. We are facing the Fastnet rock. My mother uh, wanted to see the light during the night, so she put something taller to put her bed, uh, and so she, she would be able to see the light. She just loved this country we know that she was murdered but we still don't know how and why the person who thinks to kill my mother is still a life free it can happen again Sophie Toscan de Plantier's life was, on one level, a glamorous whirlwind of Parisian social occasions. Her second marriage to film producer Daniel Toscan de Plantier was a hectic world from which she sought refuge in the solitude of her holiday home in Dunmanis in West Cork. 39-year-old Madame du Plantier was found murdered in the laneway of her holiday home, eight miles from Skull in West Cork. Despite all the efforts of the Gardaí, her killer is still at large. A murder, a murder hunt, a community living in fear. Just before 11 o'clock this
0: morning, a team of Gardaí investigating the murder visited a house near Skull in West Cork and arrested
1: one man. A suspect, an arrest, a media frenzy. The investigation is ongoing, as it was when he was brought in today. Then, nothing. No charge, no prosecution, no murder trial. Nothing until now.
0: This attempt by another European country to seek to extradite an Irish resident is unprecedented.
1: The French want to prosecute Ian Bailey in Paris for the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, even though the Irish authorities have said there isn't enough evidence to go to trial here. It's an obsession for every victim, everywhere in the world. You want to know the facts and get justice. Which is a frightening state of affairs that he would die in a French jail. Sometimes this is a story about one man's reputation and his pleas of innocence. Sometimes it's about a family denied justice fighting in unknown terrain. Two conflicting sides of one story, inextricably bound by one terrible event. Ever shifting, now, though, it pivots once more to where it started. Did you murder Sophie Toscan de Plantier?
2: No.
3: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst in the Intelligence Cell. I'm going to jump straight into Sophie's case, as there's much more to cover in this episode, which is the last in the series for now. And as per the norm, listener discretion is advised. The clip you just heard is from the RTE 2017 documentary. Now, since the documentary aired, Bailey was convicted on May the 21st, 2019, of Sophie's murder by the Cour de Cise de Paris and sentenced to 25 years in prison. But Bailey has never spent any time behind bars and has fought extradition on three occasions, the last time being in October 2020, when Ireland's High Court ruled that Bailey could not be extradited to serve his sentence in France. And since then, the Irish state has never challenged the High Court's ruling. So the case is at a stalemate of sorts. Now, in the last episode, I revealed that the DPP's official, Robert Sheehan, who wrote the DPP report, believed Bailey sounded credible and convincing, having heard him on one tape, a conversation that was recorded by Caroline Manger, the Paris Match journalist. And he also interpreted the fact that Bailey cooperated with the Gardaí as being indicative of his innocence. Now, he believed the key witness, Marie Farrell, to be non-credible because she lied about the man that she was with at the time of the sighting. Well, the point was, she wasn't supposed to be with him at that time, and so it's understandable that she lied, and that can be easily explained and understood. It doesn't make it right, of course, but it's not about moral judgment. These things happen in lots of cases, and much more than most would think. And I told you that the DPP report was released to Bailey and his legal team. Now, when I discovered that, I was really curious about why and also what the timeline was. And now I know, and I'm going to share with you what I found out. But before I do, there are a couple of other things I want to share with you that was in the report, which, well, they're perplexing. So there was one section that was headed premonition, and I'll read you the first sentence under it. In the event of a prosecution, Jules Thomas would clearly be a witness for Ian Bailey. Nonetheless, her reference to Bailey stating he had a feeling that something bad was going to happen is worth examining. This would have been about 12.45am on the 23rd of December 1996. And then the report lists four people who say that their dogs were upset at this time and two others who say strange people or a strange man was seen on December the 23rd, and the section finishes with a sentence that Bailey and Jules were in the pub at this time. And that's pretty much it. Now, admittedly, I'm somewhat baffled about this section. It's clear that Jules won't testify against Bailey, but I'm unclear as to why this would be under the premonition heading. And also the doggos. Now, as much as I love doggos, I don't think these doggos would make great witnesses. So I'm not sure why they're included here, and I have no idea what he thinks could be further examined with them. And the fact that Bailey had a premonition, why is that being considered over and above concrete witnesses testifying to what they saw and heard? What is worth pursuing was that a strange man was seen. That should definitely be explored. And the strange people, in inverted commas. I mean, this feels somewhat vague, but again, it should be explored. The DPP wrote that the Guardian investigation into Sophie's murder had effectively destroyed the quality of life for Bailey and Jules Thomas. And the report went on and made serious allegations against Gardy in relation to how witnesses were encouraged to make statements. Now, along with repeatedly referring to indications of Bailey's innocence, such as his willingness to give a hair sample, it criticised the arrest of Jules as possibly illegal and noted that, in fact, the DPP's office had advised against her arrest And that was all under the heading, Detention of Jules Thomas, Allegedly on Suspicion of Committing Murder. Now that clearly is a point of tension, that the Gardaí took advice, and then they went ahead with the arrest anyway. But not only did the DPP report demolish the case against Bailey, witness by witness, as well as being centred on the absence of any concrete physical evidence, it failed to take into account the circumstantial evidence the totality of circumstances and the cross-cooperation of what the witnesses said. For example, James Camier's statement to Gardy in 1998 was supported by similar statements by Caroline Leftwick and Paulo Colmaine, who also said that Bailey had told them of the murder that morning, evidence that contradicted both Bailey and Jules, who said they only learned of the murder at 1.40pm when informed of it by Eddie Cassidy. That cross-cooperation is important, in my opinion. So I have to posit the question, what's the likelihood that these individuals got together and conspired against Bailey? That they orchestrated what to say, when to say it and how, and that they remembered this and repeated the same thing over and over again when asked, even lying under oath? I mean, why would they do that? What's the incentive for all these folk to lie? And I also made another discovery, and it relates to a different witness, a man called Patrick Lowney. Patrick Lowney disclosed that a man had called him in May 2000 to ask him to develop a roll of film discreetly. When he confirmed that he would, the man said he'd call again. The man then turned up at Lowney's home address 45 minutes later with a 36-shot roll of film. Now, he remained with him in the darkroom, And Patrick Lowney said that he got agitated when he started looking closely at the photos as they were being developed. But what he saw shocked him. There were many photos of a woman lying on the ground. He said that she appeared to be on a stony ground in front of a closed gate on a lane and there were briars and a stone wall to the side. He thought the pictures had been taken at night and the woman on the ground appeared to be fully clothed. Some of the photos seemed to be taken right above the woman's body as the tips of the photographer's shoes were showing in some of the pictures. Patrick Lowney said he met Detective Sergeant Jerry McCarthy five months later and the guard showed him photographs of various men. He identified the man who called him with the role of film as being Ian Bailey. He later traveled with Detective Sergeant McCarthy and Detective Garder John Moore to the crime scene and examined the entrance. And he believed it was a similar location to the one in the pictures, albeit the briars were higher in the photos. Detective Garda John Moore took Patrick Lowney's statement in November 2000. And Patrick Lowney did give evidence at the French trial. Now his statement corroborates what Podrick Byrne and Michael McSweeney said. But why was there no mention of this in the DPP's report? And if the photos existed, where did they end up? And I'm curious about what else may have been overlooked or missing from the DPP's report. In my opinion, it just seems so biased. But why would it be so biased? And how and why was it released to Bailey? Well, I found out that the DPP report was given to Bailey and his legal team in November 2011. The reason why? Well, it's a little convoluted but it again tracks back to the DPP's office and the DPP, although not James Hamilton, but Eamon Barnes, the former DPP. Now, Eamon Barnes claimed that in 1998, a former West Cork solicitor by the name of Malachi Buhig was called to a meeting by three senior guards. Now, he said that the officers made it known that they were under pressure to secure a charge against Bailey. And after the meeting, a guard apparently followed Maliki Buhig outside and asked whether he'd been at school with John O'Donoghue, the then Minister for Justice. Now, the guard allegedly urged the solicitor to ask the minister to use his influence to help get a charge. And this so-called attempted interference was taken seriously by Eamon Barnes, although at the time no further action was taken. Eamon Barnes is understood to have disclosed the information to the state authorities in the interests of justice on october the twelfth, twenty eleven. Apparently he was concerned that Bailey would face trial in France on the foot of what he believed to be a flawed and prejudiced investigation and a grossly improper attempt to get a prosecution. Now the Attorney General Marie Whelan, she then took an extraordinary decision. She advised that what was called the Barnes correspondence, along with the highly critical 44-page DPP report, should be handed over to Bailey, as well as the French in the interests of justice. It's rather bizarre, I have to say, that the DPP chose not to take action at the time when it happened, in 1998, but yet he resurfaced it more than 13 years later. But that's what happened. And the report being released to Bailey... Well that was a complete manner from heaven this report has had such serious repercussions still to this day despite the fact it was written in 2001 and since then so much more has come to light but one thing has been really niggling away at me ever since i listened to the west court podcast and watched the docu series What was niggling away at me was Bailey's confidence throughout the docu-series and podcast in particular. His confidence levels, well, his arrogance, well, they were off the charts. And of course, his lack of empathy was a big red flag for me, but it was more his confidence and a sense that he was almost toying with the journalists and documentarians at times and that he was enjoying himself perhaps a little too much. Now, Nick Foster recalls in his book, Murder at Roaring Water, the first day of shooting murder at the cottage, Bailey suggested filming at the quarry as he wanted to get some stone for a perimeter wall. So he took Donal McIntyre, Nick Foster and the entire crew to a quarry where he proceeded to smash open rock and then carry 15 kilogram rocks rather easily to his car. Nick said that he couldn't help but think of how Sophie died. Coincidence? Another time, Nick asked Bailey if he was writing, and he meant writing generally. But Bailey answered that he wasn't, and that after the arrest, he found that he could no longer get work as a journalist. He said that he couldn't write about, in inverted commas, the affair. That's what he called it. But it's what he said afterwards, which really bothered me. He said this. Now I can work the journalists like puppets on strings. It bothered Nick Foster too. But then I started to think back to a podcast interview that Ralph Siegel did, as well as the articles that he'd written about Bailey. Ralph Siegel is a journalist who's extensively covered the case, and multiple times he referred to Bailey as being a remarkable figure. Colourful, eccentric, a man who loves poetry, an unusual character, charming. The fact that he always rang him back, that he was always accessible and very polite. He said he was physically very large too, like a leading Shakespearean character, very tall, upright posture, like a Heathcliff-type character in Wuthering Heights, he said. And Ralph described his relationship with Jules as being Tempestuous and in inverted commas, falling right into the trap, the euphemism for abuse, colouring the relationship as something totally different to what it is. And yes, I believe that he's been seduced. You see that charm offensive. You see it working. The fact that he was always accessible and always available to colour the story. The more that he talks, the more that he thinks people will believe his version of events, as he believes he's smarter than them. Of course he understands journalists. He's one of them. And he's used to writing the story. He's used to writing the headlines. And he did, even in this case. We have to remember that Bailey was and still is a crime reporter. He understands the beat. He understands police procedure. He understands forensics. And remember what he said to the police when they first interviewed him. He said that they had never interviewed someone like him. That's what he said. And this is what he said when interviewed by the media after the first arrest in 1997.
1: If they had evidence, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I, I wouldn't have been released.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well...
1: I know I'm, I'm innocent. I have nothing to do with this killing. Did you kill... You no. no.
3: Again, he sounds very confident and plausible, doesn't he? Let's break down what he said with some linguistic analysis. Now, this is classic faulty logic. Just because he was released, it doesn't mean there wasn't any evidence. You can be released for lots of different reasons. And then there's the statement, I know I'm innocent. He's reframing the narrative. You can know something and it not be true. He should just say a declarative and definitive statement, I'm innocent. And he also says the killing. He doesn't name Sophie, he creates distance. Now, these are all markers of deception. And there's something else that I noticed. And here's a top tip for crime analysts. Listen to a clip multiple times. And if there's a visual, again, watch the clip multiple times. As each time, you'll pay attention and notice different things. You should always do this as a crime analyst. Now, at first, I was listening intently to what was being said, the audio. And I wasn't paying attention to what was happening on camera. But when I rewatch the interview clip, when Bailey was asked whether he killed Sophie Toscan Plantier, his stare intensifies and he looks fixated. There's a real intensity about him, like he'd been waiting for this question and had prepared for it and been preparing for it. And when it comes, he gives an emphatic no, but his head nods yes. Now, my interpretation of that is leakage right there. These are the moments that I wait for. And you should really check it out. Look at the clip yourself. Now, the actual clip is from the behavior panel. And full disclosure, I haven't watched these guys before, but someone sent me the link and the clip. And I'll put the link in the show notes. Now, that particular interview that I'm referencing is at 40.47 to 4058 And it's from an old interview Bailey gave, as I said, in 1997 after he was arrested. So watch it yourself so you can see exactly what I'm talking about and you can decide for yourself. The second nod that he does afterwards, I think he's re-emphasizing and it's kind of like a so there. It's for emphasis. And again, it's unnecessary, but it's really hard to control everything. You can control what you say, but oftentimes your body may betray you and leak out a different message. And he's not an expert on behavior. And in the moment, in an interview, the excitement of doing it or when the adrenaline is pumping through the body or you're trying to remember what to say, well, your face may do its own thing. Now, what I'll say to you is that baseline behavior is important on things like this. So you can never just take something in isolation. But this to me is significant. And again, would tell me that I need to ask more detailed questions here. There's a follow-up question that I would ask here. And the answer would tell me whether he killed Sophie. But I'm not going to share that question here. We have to keep some things back and not educate those who do bad things. It's always a careful balancing act, and I'm very conscious of that. But if the investigative team were to ask me, I'd share it with them. Bailey is so confident here, but he becomes more and more confident and emboldened. Well, now I know why. And it's not surprising, really. I mean, he had the DPP's report, for goodness sake. The top lawyer in the land. Well, his official. And that official had taken the case against him apart. It's unfathomable, but that's what happened. And as a consequence, Bailey took legal action against the police, the Minister for Justice and the Attorney General. And he also complained to GSOC, the Ombudsman for the police, and Jules followed suit for wrongful arrest. And remember, he wasn't arrested just once, he was arrested twice. So let me take a moment to tell you about the wrongful arrest lawsuit. And remember, there had already been a libel trial in 2003, and Bailey lost against six of the eight newspapers. And a lot more information came out in the public domain, particularly regarding his domestic violence. Judge Moran found that articles which had said that Bailey was the chief suspect in Sophie's murder were justified and that he was comfortable stating that Bailey was a violent man. Well, Bailey also lost his civil action over the conduct of the Gardee investigation into Sophie's murder. The 64-day trial lasted almost five months. Over 70 witnesses were called by the state and 21 by Bailey the jury was told that they had to answer two questions. Firstly, whether three Gardie, Detective Garda Jim Fitzgerald, Detective Garda Jim Slattery, and Garda Kevin Kelleher, or any combination of them, conspired to implicate Bailey in Sophie's murder by obtaining statements from Marie Farrell by threats, inducements, or intimidation, which purportedly identified him as the man she saw at Kelfada Bridge in the early hours of December 23rd, 1996, when they knew they were false. Secondly, did Detective Garda Fitzgerald and Sergeant Morris Walsh conspire by threats, inducements or intimidation to get statements from Marie Farrell that Ian Bailey had intimidated her when they knew they were false? Now, the trial concluded on March 30th, 2015, when the jury came back within two hours. The jury decided that the guardian question had not conspired to carry out these actions. And moreover, according to Judge John Hedigan, Bailey's arrests were not to be considered because they were lawful. And after the civil trial against the guards... There was then the GSOC, the Garda-Sheehanan Ombudsman Commission Report, which was published in August 2018
2: policing watchdog GSOC has said it has serious concerns about the deliberate alteration of key documents in the Gorda investigation into the murder of Sophie Toscan du Plantier. However, the GSOC report found no evidence of high-level Gorda corruption following complaints by journalist Ian Bailey, his partner and a key witness.
0: Today's report, published on GSOC's website at 5 o'clock this evening, represents the culmination of a a six-and-a-half-year investigation. The investigation followed complaints made first by Ian Bailey and subsequently by his partner Jules Thomas and by Marie Farrell, a key witness in the Garda investigation into the murder of French film producer Sophie Tuscan-Duplantier. Madame du Duplantier's bloodied body was found on a laneway leading to her West Cork holiday home two days before Christmas 1996. Mr Bailey, Ms Thomas and Ms Farrell alleged high-level corruption and the Garda murder investigation which followed. This evening's long-awaited report contains ten conclusions. GSOC found no evidence of corruption by Garda involved in the murder investigation and no evidence of high-level corruption as alleged. The report found that a number of factors led, at a nearly stage in the Garda investigation, to the identification of Ian Bailey as a suspect. And the arrest of Mr Bailey and Ms Thomas couldn't have been construed, GSOC says, as unlawful or illegal. The report also found no evidence that Marie Farrell was coerced or intimidated into making false statements against Ian Bailey. However, the GSOC investigation has raised a number of issues about which the Commission says it's gravely concerned. GSOC says a large number of original statements and exhibits relating to the investigation went missing. Pages from the investigation's jobs books... The official record of the investigation also went missing and a number of Gardaí were less than cooperative with the GSOC investigation. GSOC concludes that there was evidence of a lack of administration and management of aspects of the Garda investigation.
2: And Pascal joins us now from Cork. Pascal, any reaction from Mr Bailey or his representatives this evening?
0: Yes, I spoke uh, earlier on to Frank Buttimer. He is Ian Bailey's solicitor. Uh, He spoke earlier on this afternoon to Ian Bailey himself. Both are disappointed uh, with the findings of today's GSOC investigation, but they say uh, they're not surprised. And Frank Buttimer described uh, GSOC as not being fit for purpose because it didn't have the proper investigative tools.
2: So many twists and turns in this case, Pascal. What happens now?
0: Uh, Well, there's quite possibly no comfort for anybody in this report, but it's possible that it wasn't meant to provide comfort uh, for anybody. There's very serious criticisms of the Gardaí here. findings that pages of the, uh, from the jobs books for instance, the official record of the investigation uh, had been torn out. For Ian Bailey, well Ian Bailey is charged in France with the voluntary manslaughter of Sophie Tuscant du Plantier, a trial that is slated for early next year. He is heading uh, to the European Court of Human Rights uh, to appeal that decision to charge him and to try to stop his trial. Uh, Had this report found in his favour. I'm sure that would have buttressed his appeal to the European Court uh, without findings in his favour. He may find himself uh, in a much more difficult position. Eileen.
2: Pascal Sheehy, thank you.
3: And so GSOC criticised the management of the investigation into Sophie's murder, but said that there was no evidence that Gardy had framed Bailey for it. But what they did find was that Pages had been removed from the Garda Jobs book, which contained details of the investigation. Also missing, with a blood-spattered gate from outside Sophie's house, a black overcoat belonging to Bailey, and a wine bottle found in a field near the crime scene. Now, those things are concerning. It was deemed that there was no way that the pages of the book could have just fallen out. They were actually physically removed. And the gate going missing... Well, apparently there was blood on the gate, but how does a gate just disappear? That is critical evidence. Perhaps that will be found at some point. Who knows? There's every possibility that that may happen. And there's various discussions about a wine bottle that's been back in the media more recently, and Nick Foster certainly has a view on the bottle being the murder weapon. I don't share that view. But I think it's important just to talk about Sophie's uncle, who made comments on the GSOC report, and it certainly had an impact in terms of France. Sophie's uncle, Jean-Pierre Gazou, the president of a group called the Association for the Truth about the Murder of Sophie Toscan du Plantier, was quoted in a Sunday Times article. He said, "'The most important point to retain from the document is that there is no evidence to suggest Ian Bailey was framed,' or their evidence was falsified, forged, or fabricated by Gardi. The report is important because it confirms a previous judgment from the High Court of Dublin that the Gardie criminal investigation was not corrupt. This point will certainly be useful for the next stages of judicial actions in France, particularly the Aziz's trial against the accused person. Okay, so Bailey lost his challenge to the European Court of Human Rights to stop the French trial from going ahead. And as we know, he was found guilty in absentia. The fact that Bailey also lost the case against the police and state, and the GSOC report also said they found no evidence of corruption, is significant. And there were three other reviews which I'll briefly mention. The MacAndrew report in 2008, a review by Chief Superintendent Tom Hayes, and a report of the Fennelly Commission in 2017. Assistant Commissioner Ray McAndrew oversaw one internal Garda investigation following allegations of duress by one witness in 2005, followed by a review by Chief Superintendent Tom Hayes. Neither report has been published, and they remain restricted, despite Bailey trying to get access to them for his civil action. The Fennelly Commission was an investigation under Mr. Justice Narr Fennerly, who found evidence that Gardee were, in inverted commas, prepared to contemplate altering, modifying, or suppressing evidence that did not assist them in furthering their belief that Ian Bailey murdered Sophie. Close inverted commas. But the judge found no actual evidence that any statements in the case had been interfered with, although he said that there were two instances where Guardy appeared willing to contemplate allowing or encouraging false evidence to be given. And so the upshot is that three DPPs over the years have taken the same decision not to prosecute Bailey, despite the findings of these reviews and Bailey losing the court action against the police. And the clarifier, it was Eamon Barnes, who was Ireland's first DPP, who took the decision first off not to prosecute Bailey. He gave evidence at the High Court in 2015 and said he did not prosecute Bailey because he did not believe there was prima facie evidence to do so and also due to the challenges with the police investigation. He told the court that he was aware Gardy were anxious that Bailey be prosecuted and there was a lot of, in inverted commas, attempted persuasion for this to happen. And so despite these reviews the DPP's office has stuck to their guns and remained firm in their decision not to prosecute Bailey. And so the French trial went ahead, starting in May 2019. And yes, admittedly, for me, it's a strange process to put someone on trial in absentia for murder in another country and find them guilty. Now, you might recall that I said in an earlier episode that the two criminal justice systems base their decisions on the same evidence and information— But that's not entirely accurate. The French investigated the case for longer, for nine years, and they spoke with many witnesses in Ireland and in France, and they had access to information from the libel trial. And their criminal justice process puts the victim at the heart of it, and so Sophie was at the centre of it rather than Bailey. Now, some witnesses from Ireland did testify, and statements were read out in court too, but importantly, there was new information and witnesses who testified in person, whereas the DPP's official made their decision in isolation based on the case file and information obtained between December the 23rd, 1996 and 2001. However, even though Bailey was found guilty in France, three attempts to have him extradited using a European arrest warrant have failed, the most recent attempt being in October 2020. Again, much weight was placed on the DPP's 2001 report and in the 2020 ruling, and many thought that when Bailey was convicted in a French court, that that would change the decision regarding extradition. But in the 63-page written judgment, Mr. Justice Burns emphasized that the guilt or innocence of Bailey in respect of the murder of Sophie was not an issue in the proceedings. It's actually more complicated than that. And what it boils down to is effectively the Irish don't recognise French law, despite being a European member state. So the technical side I'm going to explain now for those who are interested. It came down to the requirement of reciprocity, namely nationality. Bailey being English and not Irish, and Ireland having an extra requirement to fulfill regarding the validity of a European arrest warrant issued by another member state. Let me read out what it says on the Association for the Truth about the Murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier website, where it explains this requirement of reciprocity. And for those that are interested, the link is in the show notes. This is what it says. In our case, a French citizen was killed in another country. The suspect resides in that other country while being a citizen of a third country, i.e. Bailey is still a British citizen. French criminal law provides that the French justice system can intervene in the case, initiate criminal prosecution, decide on bringing charges against the suspect, and refer to the competent French court, which will decide on the suspect's guilt and request his transfer to the issuing state via the European arrest warrant. Irish criminal law does not provide for the same possibility, meaning that if an Irish citizen was killed in France, the Irish justice system could not intervene either at the investigation stage or at the prosecution stage. The Irish justice system can only intervene abroad if the suspect is himself or herself an Irish citizen. In other words... It's the nationality of the victim which authorises the French justice system to deal with a criminal case when the crime has been committed abroad, whereas under Irish law, it's the nationality of the alleged perpetrator which justifies the intervention of the Irish justice system abroad. And so this is why the case is at a stalemate of sorts. And it's also just worth thinking about the costs of Sophie's case. We know the cost in terms of human life, to Sophie and to her family and friends, it's immeasurable. But just think for a moment about the cost of the investigations. All of these reviews and all the legal processes, the costs for the state have been immense and it's still ongoing. Perhaps if there had been a trial in the first place, a lot of this could have been avoided. Now, as I said before, since the DPP's report, much more information has come to light and there's extensive footage of Bailey Take a listen to this clip, for example, from the 2017 RTE documentary.
1: Violence, you can't really contest that, can you? Uh, no, but it has to be taken in context. Uh, is there a context for domestic violence? Well, there, there was in my case because I'd, I, I i was irresponsible with alcohol. I was irresponsible with, with whiskey. It's a move. The libel trial went into very, very personal details from your diaries. You wrote in some detail about being sexually very aggressive. You said that you were a monster or a beast or something like um, that. I, I do you know. I, I can't remember. I may, I may have made a reference to my behaviour towards Jules. I behaved very badly. Um, but that, that doesn't make me a killer.
3: The minimization here is classic. The retelling of the story. Because there's a context for his violence, apparently. So says every abuser. But even he's not buying what he's selling here. And he wrote about this in his diaries. He admits to almost killing Jules. That information is significant from the diaries and key extracts were read out in the libel trial in 2003. And so I'll make it very plain. The serious domestic abuse committed by Bailey, along with his control-related behavior and attempts to minimize and reframe, is worthy of attention in the new investigation and any future decision-making regarding the prosecution of Bailey. He battered Jules's face. He devalued and disfigured the significant woman in his life, which means he could do the same to any woman. And yes, this does make him a monster. It's not about behaving badly to someone as he frames it. He beat her so severely, he almost killed her. Jules had reconstructive surgery to her face, and so we can't let him get away with reframing the narrative. But see how plausible he appears. Despite there being evidence to what he actually did, there's photographic evidence and witnesses, and Jules, a living witness, the victim, and the police were called, and the cases went to court. Yet he has no qualms about minimising it and reframing it as just being irresponsible and behaving badly. And so, no, I'm not having it. Others have allowed it to be downplayed and called it, for example, a tumultuous relationship. But I'm not letting him off the hook. And now I can add manipulation and deception to his character traits. And now I know what the tells are to look out for when he lies." And there's also the lack of empathy and callous disregard when he talks about Jules and Sophie. And then there's a so-called dark humour or off-colour comments or admissions. That's what those who he uttered them to believe them to be. But in reality, who jokes about themselves committing a brutal murder multiple times to different people? No one does it. It's so odd to joke about something like this. And so was he unburdening himself? Was it leakage? And what are the chances, as I've said before, that all the witnesses have misinterpreted this or misremembered? Well, this is what he said about it in 2017.
1: So many people all coming forward and all saying Ian Bailey one way or another said. Surely it's beyond coincidence. Surely there's something there. Well, um, uh, one, they weren't admissions. I was using irony as a tactic, albeit I can see now very unwisely.
3: Ah, okay. So apparently Bailey was being ironic. Perhaps it's more likely he borrowed that explanation rather helpfully given to him by the DPP in the report, albeit the DPP said that he was being sarcastic, even though the DPP wasn't there. So it's interesting to me that Bailey misremembers the very explanation that the DPP gave for him. Why would he misremember it? Well, he's under pressure. And because it's simply not true. And again, he's not buying what he's selling here. And neither am I. But like I said, no one but no one is ironic or joking about murdering a woman in a brutal way in the locale where it happened. I mean, why would you joke about something as serious as that? And how disrespectful to Sophie and her family? And these traits that I'm describing were their indicators of psychopathy which can be identified from an indirect assessment of Bailey's behaviour from all the extensive footage of him over the years. And let's not forget that Sophie was disfigured and devalued in her death, but also when Bailey wrote about her. He talked about her in inverted commas complicated love life and her house being a love nest. Let me read to you one of the first articles that Ian Bailey wrote for the Star newspaper. The headline is Locals Talk of Male Friends, and he uses the name Owen Bailey in this particular article. The complicated love life of murdered French documentary filmmaker Sophie Toscan du Plantier was revealed last night. Miss du Plantier, whose badly battered body was discovered yards from her isolated holiday home near Skull, West Cork, on Monday, made frequent visits to the area, often with different male companions. The 38-year-old filmmaker had just decided to divorce her present husband, Daniel, who had been married three times, and to rejoin her first husband. She used the white-painted converted farmhouse as a hideaway loveness, neighbours said. Sophie would often visit with a different young man each time, one local who asked not to be named said. Locals knew her by her maiden name, Bunior. She also used the converted cottage as a place to study film scripts in splendid isolation. And the article goes on a little bit longer, but I think it's very interesting the way that it's been framed. Locals talk of male friends. So the seed has already been sown that this was somebody who had a complicated love life, but no one went on record saying that. These are all unnamed sources. And there was one more article that he wrote, and the headline was Champagne Clue Probed. An unopened bottle of champagne might yield a clue to the identity of the killer of Sophie Toscan du Plantier. The 39-year-old French filmmaker was battered to death in West Cork two days before Christmas. The champagne was found next to a half-burned red candle in the kitchen of Sophie's isolated holiday home at Tours near Skull. Guardia are trying to determine the supplier of the champagne. One theory being considered is that Sophie may have known the killer, who could have brought the bottle on his midnight call. It's interesting that he talks about a champagne bottle and a late-night visitor, because he also had previously talked about two wine glasses on the draining board. So he must have got up close and personal to the house at some point. Now, Paul Gallagher, the defence lawyer, said that on the Monday night in the courthouse bar, Bailey talked about Sophie's face being disfigured. However, no one else knew this, including members of the investigation team. And yes, we know that he was a journalist who turned up at the scene. In fact, he was the first to arrive. But according to the guard, he asked no questions, which was a red flag to him. Well, this is what the guard said when giving evidence. Take a listen to this.
2: The court also heard from the Garda who first nominated Ian Bailey as a suspect days after the murder. Martin Malone said he was suspicious of Ian Bailey at the scene because he didn't ask many questions and left the scene too quickly. He said Mr Bailey also visited a neighbour days later and took a circuitous route that would have taken him past the murder scene. This combined with his history of violence to his partner and the proximity between his home and the victims caused him to nominate him as a suspect. Vivian Traynor, RTE News at the High Court.
3: And Bailey's diary surfaced and he talked about being sexually aggressive and beating jewels, And Bill Fuller disclosed that he talked non-stop about women and sex. And you'll recall that I spoke about an article that he published on December the 26th where he talked about there being no sexual assault when the pathologist had only just conducted the post-mortem, or autopsy as it's known as in America. But no one knew other than him, and very few other people at that time. Now, interestingly, an account on Twitter recently tweeted me, saying that you could, and I quote, see from a country mile there was no sexual assault. Well, the phrase a country mile is an old-fashioned English phrase, and one I haven't heard for a long time. It denotes the author's age, But more importantly, most rape and sexual abuse cases involve no physical injury at all. And if there were injury to, say, the vagina or genitalia, most people wouldn't see this. Now, this is in keeping with the phraseology and leakage and stove something into the back of her head. Well, that is what happened, and Bailey referenced that to Bill Fuller. But very few people knew about that at the time. Now, I suspect that that account that was tweeting me along with many others that have been trolling me, I suspect that that's Bailey. He's trying to make it sound commonplace that you can see from the crime scene that there was no sexual assault, but that just isn't the case when you've worked these cases. Then there's a conversation Bailey had with Caroline Manger, the Paris Match journalist. She included it in her statement to police in July 1997. Now, Caroline looks somewhat like Sophie, Google her and you'll see what I mean. Now, as referenced in Nick Foster's book, Bailey apparently invited her on a number of occasions to stay at the cottage. She politely declined, but that didn't deter him. On one occasion, he told her to meet him at the studio and to come alone. This is what she said in her statement. When I arrived there, he told me he wanted to write a book or make a film based on the murder. He then said he had an idea for the end that a French journalist would arrive to cover the story and should be very close to solving it, but would never actually do so. She'd fall in love with the country, buy a house there, and two years later she'd be killed in the same circumstances on a moonlit night. This made Caroline feel very uncomfortable, and she said that he wasn't joking. And so Bailey said he wanted to write a book or a film but introduce a French female journalist who is killed, too, in exactly the same way. Now, this just reeks of further evidence of Bailey toying with Caroline, enjoying her being uncomfortable. Bailey seems to love being the centre of attention when others in a similar situation might shrink away, and he's just become more and more emboldened, and he loves to talk, which is a good thing. That's why there's so much footage across time that can be used and analysed. And in the footage that I've analysed, there are a lot of red flags and markers for deception. There's a wealth of footage from a young Bailey to an old Bailey, which is extremely rare in cases like this, but it's also rather helpful for behavioural analysts like me and also for investigators. And so there's much scope for statement analysis to inform any future interview strategy. Now, just by way of a clarifier, markers for deception did not necessarily indicate guilt or that he killed Sophie. For me, there are still too many unanswered questions that must be answered, and a skilled team are needed on this case. After all, Sophie's case is still Ireland's highest-profile unsolved murder. It's an international case and an enormous story at Christmas, and it's just coming up to Christmas now and the 26th anniversary. And uniquely in Irish law, the case also prompted a 10-year investigation by another European police force once it was realised there wouldn't be a prosecution in Ireland. And there are many challenges with the case. There were no witnesses. One of the murder weapons is still missing. And many believe that it's seemingly motiveless. But like I always say, there's always a motive. And if you understand the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, it takes you to the whom. And the why isn't always easy to understand. But with most violence against women, it's normally motivated by power and control. And as I've opined, and Jim has too, we both arrived at a similar conclusion. After all, what other motive is there? Now, the guardie did look into the possibility that it had been a contract killing. But Sophie wasn't supposed to be there at that time, and the area is so remote and a stranger asking for directions to Sophie's house would have stood out. And I've not seen a case yet where a contract killer turns up without a weapon and uses what's available into hand at the time. Also, it was Bailey who suggested this, and a so-called French connection. He nudged in the direction of Daniel, but there was no evidence to suggest that. He had an alibi, as did Bruno Carbonet, The only one without an alibi and casting aspersions on Sophie and Daniel was Bailey. He changed where he said he was that night, and in his language when he describes what he did and how he did it, again, there are markers for deception. And Jules was unclear about that night too. Now that presents interviewing opportunities. And Nick Foster recently asserted on Twitter that the killer killed Sophie for a bottle of wine. Now, as I said before, it's possible, but it's highly unlikely. And it wasn't a robbery or a burglary gone wrong. Nothing was disturbed or taken. All the indicators are that everything happened outside the house. And so I go back to Arthur Conan Doyle's quote, when you've eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. And so I assess and work through all the possibilities, And there's the victimology and crime scene behavior analyzing how Sophie was killed. And I still believe that this was motivated by rejection. There was a lash out in anger by a man who has poor impulse controls, someone with an explosive temper, a Jekyll and Hyde type character, a man who wouldn't take no for an answer, a bully who would intimidate if he couldn't charm and manipulate a woman to bend to his will, a man who would leak misogyny, who objectifies women and talks down to women, who sees women as fair game, there for his pleasure, a man whose post-offence behaviour would create distance between him and Sophie, who would devalue Sophie in death. That was my profile before knowing anything about Bailey. Unfortunately, the case started badly at the crime scene. Inexperienced officers, a crime scene that wasn't secured and was compromised, Sophie's body being left outside in the elements, a protracted delay in the post-mortem being undertaken due to the DPP not properly funding the state pathologist Professor Harbison, despite his previous request for assistance and an increase in staff other than him to cover the whole of Ireland. And it ended badly with the DPP and the Attorney General releasing the critical 44-page report to Bailey. This is a perfect storm, And like I said, I've not read a report like this from a prosecutor's office, undermining every aspect of the case and the witnesses who had taken time and expense to come forward, and a suspect receiving his defence at the hands of the very office who would prosecute him. I mean, is it any wonder he's exuded this extreme confidence and felt untouchable and got bolder and bolder? Bailey said the police file was 2,000 pages of rumours. That's his opinion. And on the surface, it sounds plausible, particularly if you're emboldened by the DPP publicly stating there's no prima facie evidence to prosecute him. And across this series, I've laid out some of what was contained in the police file, the totality of circumstances that point towards Bailey, and you can decide for yourself whether there's a case to answer. For me, there's an abundance of circumstantial evidence which should not be overlooked or dismissed, In fact, it should be central in building a case. It depends what you give weight to, and in my opinion, weight has been attributed to the wrong things, and there's an abundance of faulty logic in the DPP's decision not to prosecute. Now, granted, I'm no lawyer, and I haven't seen the full file, but in my opinion, this case warrants an independent reinvestigation, and it's great news that it's finally happening, with everything now being thrown at it. Things have changed with time and distance, Jules has now separated from Bailey and has remained separated. Her daughters refused to bring their children to see Jules with Bailey in the house. Perhaps now Jules has woken up to him and the fact that she deserves so much better and I hope she's doing okay. And so there are new investigative opportunities and there's plenty of footage to be analysed and assessed. There's also a new documentary in the making from the West Cork husband and wife team, Jennifer and Sam, and Audible, and the production company's sister. This one will be made through a female lens, which is greatly needed in this case. And I hope the right experts are brought in to assist the reinvestigation, including an experienced investigator and someone who specializes in violence against women and femicide, and the same with the docuseries. And so at last, there's some great forward momentum, and I hope my series has played a small part. And I'm quietly optimistic that with the right experts involved and a truly fresh approach and open mind, Sophie Toscan du Plantier's murder will finally be solved and the perpetrator held to account. Let's hope that happens for Sophie and her family and friends' sake. I've been thinking about Sophie a lot, and so I'll end this series here for now, With thoughts of Sophie and this case being solved, the truth will out eventually. Hashtag, her name was Sophie Toscan Duplantier. Hashtag, justice for Sophie Buniel. I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell next week for a new case. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Studios.